Welcome to this week's issue of the podcast. I'm delighted this week to be joined by a renowned lawyer, Robert Amsterdam. He has built up a reputation for his unique skills combining political advocacy and international law. I've been following his career from a distance throughout the 20 years or so that I've been working in Africa, where he's picked up some high-profile clients, usually individuals who feel they're being politically harassed, and he's come to their rescue. But not uniquely, he's picked up also, in some cases, pro bono human rights cases for communities who feel that their rights have been infringed either by corporates or, or their governments. He really needs no introduction for those of you who have been following high-profile disputes globally, but also in Africa. And today, I have the privilege of speaking to him a little bit about some of the cases that he's um, supporting in all his clients in Africa at the moment, but also benefit from some of the insights that he's gained from a long and prolific career, which has brought him into a lot of contact with, with the African continent. So welcome, Robert. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure. So I wonder if we start. So you, you combine this, as I introduced, this unique skill set of political advocacy and international law. And it really is unique. There aren't many people who uh, practice it in the way that you do. You've built up a reputation that means that individuals who feel that their rights have been infringed, and then particularly people in the political sphere, you're their first port of call, or perhaps their last port of call, but you're certainly a port of call. Um, tell us a little bit more about your work. We've been, you know, particularly involved in Africa for almost half a century. I went to Lagon briefly just before the Achimpong coup and have a career that really has very much involved Africa, seeing Africa really close in time to independence up to the present day. And as a lawyer and somebody trained in the Canadian and British systems, I've often been astounded by how the legal systems in various Commonwealth countries really allow you to mix and match your background with many of the countries and many of the cases in Africa that are meaningful because so many of the African countries used Commonwealth law from where the Commonwealth was in the 40s and 50s and you know, early 60s, uh, the period of independence. So one of the things I've felt for a long time is whether it's on behalf of individuals or corporates, that human rights and the right to property, these are not just defensive tools. These are tools that can be used offensively, and particularly since the adoption of the Magnitsky Act in uh, the U.S. and in a way in the U.K., these are now great opportunities to put rulers on trial. And I think whether we are up against corporates or governments, what's often very important is to put those who are out to attack individuals or corporate rights, put them on trial as well. Robert, I know from your Twitter handle that you've been supporting Tundu Lisu in his bid for the Tanzanian presidency. The elections hosting just today, Wednesday the 28th. Tell us a little bit more about your work and perspectives that you have on this Tanzanian election. Thank you. I, essentially, we are acting as his international legal counsel, and we have been constantly communicating with various entities within Tanzania to demand Lisu's rights are respected. It's extremely difficult in Tanzania because 
there are no independent election players. So the NEC, the Electoral Commission, are essentially appointees of Magafuli. The courts have been completely taken over by the CCM. There really is no independence there. So what we've been doing is is attempting to cajole these people into respecting what should be basic norms. And unfortunately, I mean, we've had some success in that Tundu is on the ballot, but the NEC has been absolutely crushing in terms of their behavior with the opposition, disqualifying dozens of candidates without reasons, and most recently attempting to disqualify opposition parties from having individuals at the polls. And we've we're very fortunate that there are a lot of whistleblowers in Tanzania who have been reporting the details of these various plots that have been going on. But interestingly, within the last few days, Amnesty International has come out with a report entitled Lawfare, talking about all of the ways in which the CCM have legally acted to block uh, opposition parties from obtaining proper representation. And and giving the Tanzanian people a voice in their affairs. But we expect a a CCM victory at these polls. What will you do in that event? We expect one only because there's such a dramatic evidence of rigging. We certainly will be advising Tundu as to what his rights are. and We'll certainly be looking to the example we've just seen in Malawi, where we would urge there to be an election that takes place with proper international monitoring and and proper respect for the rule of law. And I would imagine that there would be very forceful representations made from opposition groups within Tanzania to, to make that happen. Because, you know, if you're following my Twitter feed, you're following the whistleblower reports we're getting of the exact mechanisms by which they're going to stuff ballots. That, that doesn't lead anyone to believe this is going to be a free and fair election. I was in the country, I've been in the country on various occasions over the last couple of years. It was assumed by many that President Magafuli would be a shoe in for a second term based on his popularity across the country. But what you're telling me is that your polls indicate otherwise. Indeed. Okay. We'll wait with great anticipation for the results. I wonder if you have perspectives that are slightly more favorable about incumbents in, in other parts of the continent. And I'm reminded, whilst there are weaknesses in democracies, frankly, everywhere, that in Africa, certainly in recent times, almost half of all countries have now witnessed an opposition victory at the ballot box. So it's, it's, it's by no means not achievable. But inference here is that certainly in the cases that you've pointed out, the, the odds are squarely stacked against the opposition there. You would we do tend to bend over backwards to try to make some of what goes on in Africa seem better than it is. And there is, as I've seen with Magafuli, what's gone on on the ground is astoundingly bad and yet gets very little coverage or attention. And of course, inside Tanzania, he is very public about saying that there is no freedom of the press, that freedom of the press exists so long as he's happy with the press. And he routinely shuts down opposition newspapers. So, you know, what I talk about, we can document. And as I said, in that white paper, we have. And in terms of popularity, if the man was in any way popular, he would not have had to amend all the laws they've amended to the point where in Tanzania, almost uniquely, opposition parties 
It, it is illegal for opposition parties to form coalitions. The outrageous level to which the insecure CCM have gone to try to protect one party rule is, is incredible. Moving away from Tanzania, if we were, I wanted to pick up on a point that, that you touched on earlier, namely the, the legal instruments that whether it be corporates or, or individuals have to be proemptive and proactive in defending their freedoms and their rights against what you termed, I think, rapacious governments. Tell us a little bit more about those legal instruments. And I know that you don't stop there because advocacy, communications, winning attention for your clients is a bit of an art form that your particular firm specializes in. That combination of legal instruments and very public advocacy, how have you finessed that over the years? I think, unfortunately, it's often been combined with very difficult causes. You know, in 2013, we took on the United Nations in Africa in a lengthy trial in Kenya at their headquarters with respect to the termination of the former head of uh, OCHA in uh, Zimbabwe. And in that case, we were working in the United Nations system, and we were able to secure a judgment that had two assistant secretaries general disciplined at the UN for the first time in history. In other cases, in normal courts in Africa, I mean, I guess there, there are a few things I can say, and it obviously depends on the country. I will say that some of the advocates I've met in Ghana or Nigeria, or for that matter, in Dar or some of the other towns like Nairobi, are as good as any you'll find on the streets of London. And I think that's something that sadly European firms often overlook, is that Africa has great advocates top-level advocates, and that African courts, especially now in the era of Trump, are not nearly as bad as their reputation might indicate. So I think one of the things we push clients to do is not rush to do the international arbitration for multi-millions of dollars in international forums, but consider bringing cases in some of these African states. We've actually had some real success, particularly in West Africa. And consider also the kind of lobbying that it's possible to do in countries where the head of state isn't so removed from normal interests as they are in many Western countries. So the, the ruling parties and the leadership are far more permeable in some of these African countries, and there's far more leverage in terms of trying to protect your clients. When your client is a political opponent, of course, that changes the complexion and makes it more difficult. But there are international bodies that you can go to. You can, if your client is unwilling to go to local jurisdictions or courts, you can go to the various panoply of international uh, treaties that exist, bilateral investment treaties and others, or to the African Court of Human Rights, or to the various UN rapporteurs, all of which are prepared to listen. So, I mean, there is, there's a vast array of options in terms of coming to grips with finding a forum to have your clients' problems heard. I wanted to turn to Zambia, if I may. You famously represented Rupia Banda, the former head of state, who felt that he was being persecuted by the government that came after him, the President Sata's government, the former president, now deceased Sata. 
I wonder if you keep close tabs on the country, and specifically, I'm really interested to get your take on the current dispute there between shareholders and to all extents and purposes, but, but actually between the Danta and the government that has resulted in the government stepping in and managing Concola copper mines and um, Vedanta feeling themselves at the mercy of local court decisions. Have you been involved there at all, or are you keeping a close... I've been involved, as you know, both for President Banda and one of the major mining companies. They're not Vedanta. You know, one of the things I'll say is that every mining company makes its own reputation. And I think it's very dangerous when we start talking about industries in general. I think Vedanta's case could be sui generis. It could be a, a very unique case. And I would be cautious before I would pass judgment on the Zambians in that particular scenario. Because I know there was a, a long outstanding judgment that hadn't been satisfied. And I don't want to just make a knee-jerk reaction against the Zambian government without careful consideration. Okay, well, that sounds... Sounds very fair and reasonable. Moving, if I may, just to this concept that you refer to of of activist engagement. To what degree do you see that companies are sensitive to this and recognize the need to get on the front foot to dialogue with governments, to manage their communities in ways that are appropriate and would lead to trust and and strong reputation and to a sort of favored position, both within the country and, and within their communities? Now, it's an unfair question to ask. We're talking about a massive continent of vast panoply of different sectors and, and companies. But I wonder, as someone who's, who's written about this over successive years and who, who sort of practiced the art form, certainly in the advice that they give to corporates, and who, based on what you've told me earlier and what I've read about you, actually resorts to sort of litigation or international arbitration really as a, as a last resort. What are your views on this? I think corporates need to take a page from our book. I think all too often, They are led by white shoe, large law firms into the most conservative positions, as if they were in Indiana as opposed to Angola. And they fail to get the local metrics right and produce problems almost from day one. And there's also an absence of creativity, an absence of really wanting to engage with communities, really putting in practice some of the basic corporate governance that, you know, has become de rigueur in the West recently. You know, I think, I believe things can change, but I think it isn't just the African governments that need to change. And I think the, to be honest, the whole aid industry bothers me. Uh, They victimize Africa and in a way they present Africa constantly as a victim of transfer pricing, as a victim of royalty, taxes, as opposed to empowering Africa to change its methods of revenue collection, negotiate better deals with the mining companies. I mean, look, let's be honest. Once you have a mining company invested in your country, you have them in a stranglehold. There's a lot better ways to negotiate than just expropriation. And the mining companies need to do a much better job than they have been doing in terms of providing the communities with decent places to live, decent hospitals, decent schools, and paying reasonable amounts of tax. I am all for an African charter that would help define for African countries what the proper rates of these taxes are. If you take Zambia, 
one of the things I've always found in Zambian history is the government undoubtedly raises the copper taxes right before a major change in the copper price. They raise the tax, the price collapses. And, you know, one of the things I've often told major copper and other companies is build in a clause where you're allowed to renegotiate with the government based on some of these massive swings in commodity prices so that you're not faced with either a gun to your head or an expropriation risk. I just think there needs to be some of that ongoing dialogue as opposed to what we've seen, unfortunately, in the Vedanta case. Mm. Turning, if we may, to another sector, technology, I'm keen to get your views on this sector. We've seen, well, we've seen congressional and Senate committee hearings in the U.S. hauling the, the leaders of the big technology firms in front of, in front of them for their role in elections and political campaigning, very well publicized. This is, of course, an issue all over the world, not just in the U.S., and it's increasingly becoming an issue within uh, many of our societies uh, on the African continent. African governments are beginning to adopt laws, policies, regulations to enable them to maintain better control on communications, whether that's communication with their citizens or companies and through monitoring and, and regulating. And in some cases, actually disrupting communications, turning off the internet. Now, governments can't do that strictly. They have to request that of or order it of the ISPs and telcos. But they have done, and they have done in, in more frequent numbers over the last two to three years. Have you been following regulation in this sector? And to what degree does it play a part in how you counsel your clients, either corporate or individuals seeking political office, in terms of levers at their disposal to, to make sure that these means and tools are available to them and not shut down? This is becoming a huge issue all over the world. I mean, Pakistan and India have been fighting because India shut the internet in Kashmir during a period of COVID. Museveni in Uganda has put a massive tax, as have other African countries, on internet activities. Tanzania has done it with registering ISPs, and you have to pay certain amounts for that. This is a, a hidden tax that's going on in a way to control freedom of expression. The internet is a right under international human rights law. There's going to have to be all sorts of litigation in these countries and internationally to stop this growing power grab with respect to politicians trying to gain advantage through internet regulation to disadvantage opponents. So it's something we're very much engaged with. There are a serious number of conventions under international law that often become overlooked, that need to be looked at by people fighting this type of overregulation. And it's something the African Union needs to take up in a major way, making a major policy statement to help curb these excesses in countries like Tanzania, Cameroon, Uganda, and other countries that have, have used these types of laws. Robert Amsterdam, on that note, I think we can conclude our conversation. I'm very grateful for the time you've afforded me and some of the insights that you've shared. I'm entirely optimistic, but um, you say that the tools are there at the disposal of people who seek office and who feel that one way or other their hands are tied behind their backs in fighting a fair contest. And likewise, you say that there's a prospect of instruments being available 
to ensure that some of the technologies that are so critical now to passing information on on mass left open and that there's some common consistency of regulation. I fear we're still quite a long way away from that, but it's good to know that people like yourself are actively sort of trying to open up channels to ensure that this might be the case. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you, Robert.